chapter 5. Really glad you all are here with us as we continue on in our sermon series entitled Sipping Salt Water. We have seen in part one that God has created us for a relationship with Him. He has created us for paradise, but that in the fall of mankind, we have lost that. And in place of paradise uh, longed for, uh, we turn to all sorts of other things to fill that gap. God has set eternity in our hearts, and instead we turn to idolatry, to all sorts of other types of salt water to satisfy that which only God can provide for us through a relationship with him, we've seen that Jesus Christ has come on the scene, and he has offered us living water, the spring of uh, eternal life, the gift of the Holy Spirit coming into, inside of our hearts and satisfying our deepest spiritual longings. And this morning we continue to talk about spiritual thirst, and we'll learn that we are, though we have met Christ and though we have living water inside of us, that there is still a thirst that we're still thirsty people. Galatians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. I trust that you're there or close to it. And uh, so let's pray, and then we will dive right on in. So let's pray together, if you will, as uh, the people of God. Father, thank you uh, so much for the privilege of being here. It's good to sing your praise with the people uh, that you have redeemed for your glory and for our good. It's good for us to give of our finances, that which you've entrusted to us. We give back a portion to you for the furtherance of your gospel and your kingdom. And now it's good to sit with Bibles in our lap to see your inspired and authoritative and inerrant word. Father, we pray that you would move among us in a powerful way, that your spirit would move and help us to identify the idols that our heart has created, that we wonder Uh, to. Father, the songs that we have sung, the prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Lord, we are prone to wonder. We are wondering people with wondering hearts, even after we taste the fresh and life-giving water. Oh, Lord, help us to cling to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Sandra was raised going to a conservative Southern Baptist Church with her family. She was practically there every time that the church doors were opened. Her mom and dad were very strong believers, and they regularly talked with her about the Bible and about the gospel and about her need for a personal relationship with with God through faith in Christ. But despite this fertile gospel soil in which she was raised as she entered her teenage years, she began to face the pressures of society, the pressures of her friends, and she began to struggle with self-image, with how she viewed herself. She became very aware of how she looked and how she was perceived with her peers and, of course, with the boys, and so she began to obsess with her image and her weight. This started with sort of light dieting in an attempt to thin her already thin frame. And eventually, of course, it progressed to all-out anorexia. And her parents were concerned and saw what was going on and took her to a gifted spiritual Christian counselor who, in time, helped her not only with her eating disorder but with her spiritual disorder, pointing her towards Jesus the one who could help her become whole, 
again. And so at the age of 16, she tasted the spring of living water for the first time. At 16 years old, she trusted in the gospel that she had learned and heard all of her life. She became a Christian. She entered into a relationship with God. And at that moment, her thirst was quenched. She made significant progress with her eating disorders, and for a number of years she lived in victory over it. But she soon realized that within her born-again heart was a battle for supremacy. See, she thought that after she would trust in Christ, that the salt water of human acceptance and self-image would be completely gone. But it still lingered. She knew Christ's words. She knew that Jesus promised that whoever believed in him would never be thirsty. So why did she continue to struggle with the idols in her heart, with the idols from her past, with the lies that they were telling her? She, she desired to find her joy and her purpose and her significance in Christ. But there was something in her still thirsty, for the same old salt water. She periodically would relapse and still struggle with the disorders of her past, all the while longing for the day when she would only thirst for Christ alone. She experienced the freedom and the peace and the love that she had longed for when she met Jesus, yet she still was thirsty. Maybe you can identify with Sandra's experience. I know that I can. After serving the idols of pleasure and comfort and human acceptance when I was 16 years old, I trusted in Christ like Sandra did. And I too had my spiritual thirsts quenched. I too knew the love of God as I never had before. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had changed my heart, that he had changed my desires, that I was, as Jesus says, born again. And as Paul says, a new creation in Christ. The purpose and the meaning that I was looking for in rest and relaxation and friends and success were all met by setting my bottles of salt water down in exchange for Jesus' living water. Yet, as I grew in my faith, in high school and in college and in seminary and beyond, it became very apparent to me that my thirst had been quenched, sort of. That inside of me, there was still a taste for salt water. It still had a certain appeal that I still continued to struggle with sin. That I would do the things that I ultimately did not want to do in my born-again heart, or I wouldn't do the things that I really wanted to do. Friends, we, even though we have trusted in Christ, though we have tasted Jesus' living water, even after receiving Him, friends, we still have the propensity to sip on Salt water. The theologians call this experience the already but not yet. The already but not yet reality of living the Christian life. And so, what this means for us is that living the Christian life involves a struggle. 
It is a continual struggle to identify and to remove and to replace the salt waters in our hearts and in our lives and turn to the living water that Jesus has put inside of us. So this morning, I want to shape our sermon around three questions. Three questions. Question number one, are we, that is, those of us who have been born again, are we as Christians, in a sense, still thirsty? Are we still thirsty? That is, do we still struggle with idolatry and the idols that our hearts creates even after we become Christians? Question number one. Question number two, if the answer is yes, and I think I'll demonstrate that it is, if the answer is yes, will there ever be a day when we will stop struggling with the idols of our hearts? Another way to put it is, will our thirst ever ultimately and eternally be quenched? Question number two. And question number three, if the answer is yes to question number two, uh, then until that time, until that moment, what then? How shall we fight the pull of the idols of our hearts? How shall we fight the thirsts that we experience for the salt water that exists in our world and in our hearts? So three questions. Let's begin with question number one. Are we still thirsty? Are we still thirsty? I think an isolated reading of some of the passages that we have been exploring, in particular the words of Jesus from the Gospel of John, might make you think that after tasting the living water which Jesus offers and gives to us through his Gospel, that we would never thirst for salt water again. But friends, you don't have to be a Christian very long to know that though our thirst has been quenched, in a sense, that we're still thirsty people. That though we have drunk from Jesus' living water, that a taste for salt water still exists and resides somewhere inside a part of us. That though the living water which Jesus identifies in John chapter 7 as the person of the Holy Spirit, resides in us and draws us to satisfaction in God, that there is another reality inside of us, pulling us the opposite direction, away from the springs of living water to cisterns of salt water of our choosing. See, we still have a choice to make brothers and sisters. We still have a choice to make, whether we will sip on the living water that Jesus has given us in the person of the Holy Spirit, or whether we will turn once again to salt water. I think one of the best places to read about this internal reality for the Christian, this already but not yet reality, is in Galatians chapter 5. So I trust you're there. Let's begin in verse 16. In verse 16. In verses 16 through 18, Paul describes the spiritual reality for every Christian in this way. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, 
so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So let's flesh this out for a moment. First of all, Paul tells us that born-again, heaven-bound, Spirit-endowed Christians have two competing forces, drives at work within our hearts. The first is none other than God himself, right? The person of the Holy Spirit. And the second is a power that Paul calls the flesh. The flesh. That is the part of us, even as born-again Christians, that bucks the law of God, that hates the way of God, and that desires to follow its own sinful passions. So he says there's the flesh, and then there is the spirit. And notice he says that these two, what is the relationship between these two entities, if you will? They don't get along, do they? There is a fight. There is a conflict inside of our hearts. They are, friends, in conflict for our obedience. They are in conflict for our affections. They are in conflict for our love. The flesh lies to us. It tells us that if we go its way, that it will meet our deepest needs. It will satisfy our deepest longings. But in the end, it will only deprive us of the life-giving, soul-nourishing, living water that Jesus has given to us. Next, Paul gives us a picture. He paints a portrait, if you will, of the types of behaviors that are linked to the Holy Spirit and to the flesh, right? In other words, he anticipates a question. Well, how do I know if as a Christian, if I'm walking by the Spirit? Or how do I know if as a Christian, I'm walking according to the flesh? In other words, how will I know which one I'm giving my allegiance to? Well, he anticipates that question, and he gives us two lists so that we can know which one we are living according to. Notice verse 19. Now, the deeds of the flesh, he says, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, 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 sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, as if the list was not long enough, and things like this, of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he wants, he's very clear, these are the, the things that following the flesh produces. But, in verse 22, this is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, Paul says, there is no law. So friends, as Christians, in our already moments, if you will, in the moments when we are living and walking according to the Spirit... We drink the living water of the Holy Spirit. But in our not yet moments, the moments in which we live according to the flesh and so according to the flesh, then our life looks like a list of these vices, of which, of course, idolatry is a part. It's important that we see in the Christian life that we can live or walk according to either. 
We can walk according to the power of the Spirit and demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit, or we can walk according to the flesh. We are in the words of the hymn that we just sung, and I feel this as a Christian. I think you probably feel this as well. We are prone to wonder, are we not? We are prone to wonder. Lord, we feel it. We are prone to leave him, the God whom we love. There is something inside of us, and it's our flesh pulling us away from the one who has redeemed us, from the one whom we love. So what does this already but not yet reality look like in the life of the Christian? Well, let's just take the idol of human approval, if you will, as an example. So when we become Christians, and I know personally what this is like, our longing to be popular, which is paramount, subsides. We become content in our relationship with God. We care more about what God thinks of us than what others think of us. And we usually don't do the things or say the things based on what others might want from us, but, but what God wants from us. Our orientation has changed, and, and in a sense, the idol of the heart has been removed. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and yet there's a part of us, our flesh, that really still enjoys it when other people are happy with us that really still enjoys it when a relationship uh, is not just a good thing, but it is, it is a God thing. It is ultimate. And we have to make that person happy. We need that person's approval more than anybody's else, anybody's approval, even more than God's approval. So we do things like we lie to cover up our mistakes because we are so desperate to have this person want us and approve of us. Already, but not yet. Life in the Spirit and life in the flesh. And so this reality of already and not yet, we have been satisfied and yet there is the flesh in us that still is thirsty, drawing us towards salt water. So if this is the reality, is there a time when we won't fight this fight anymore? Is there a time when the draw of salt water, the taste of salt water, We won't want it at all. Is there a time when we will be fully quenched? I think there is. So turn with me in your Bibles, towards the end of your Bibles, and in fact, the very last book, the book of Revelation. So turn there, if you will, to Revelation chapter 7. There in Revelation chapter 7, we get a couple pictures, I think, of what it looks like to be fully quenched to be fully quenched. Revelation chapter 7. The first picture in chapter 7 starts in verse 16. And what we get here is a glimpse of heaven. What we get in chapter 7 is a glimpse of what Christians who have died and gone before us are experiencing right now. I'll call it the first stage of being fully quenched. The first stage. Verse 16 Heaven is described in these terms. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will will not beat down on them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb, Jesus, at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will, notice this, he will lead them to springs of what? Living water. 
We've seen that term before, have we not? Jesus spoke up during the great festival, right? If you're thirsty, come to me, and I'll give you what? Springs of living water. Now, in heaven, our thirst is finally quenched. Eternity with Jesus for the Christian is likened to Jesus giving us living water, and we will never be thirsty again. Turn with me to chapter 21. Chapter 21, we get stage two, if you will, of what fully quenched looks like. In Revelation 21, that's what the experience is for brothers and sisters who have gone before us in heaven. But there will be a day when Jesus Christ will return to the earth. And there will be a day when the earth as we know it will be no more. And there will be a day when God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And notice in chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every, uh, every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order has, of things have, has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now notice these words. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. So heaven is portrayed as springs of living water. And our eternal existence as Christians is described as having access to the springs of living water. Hop in his his book says this. I think his words are so helpful. What will the eternal already look like? He says everything will be made new. Everything. The physical world around us will be new. Our bodies will be new. Our relationships will be new will be new. Our minds will be new. Our hearts will be new. This broken world will be broken no more. There will be no more grieving or worrying. No more anger, aggravation, insecurity, irritation, hatred, or heartache. No more suffering at all. God will be with us permanently. And then he writes these words. This means... And I like the language here. No more intermittent trips to the water fountains. We'll be hooked up to living water IVs. I love that image. We'll experience the paradise that humanity had to leave in the Garden of Eden. We'll dwell in a new garden, a new heaven, a new earth. Our thirst will be finally quenched forever. Friends, if you are in the struggle as I am in the struggle, as a believer who wants to experience the living water that Jesus 
gives to us, but our flesh draws us towards idolatry. And we long for the day. When will we not struggle with the idols of our hearts anymore? I mean, will this come to an end? Can we keep fighting these idols that we're going to talk about in the weeks to come? Can we pursue living water? Yes, we can, because the day will come when salt water will be no more. But friends, until that day, until that day, what then? What then? Well, Hop in his book introduces us to, I think, a very helpful and practical paradigm for evaluating any form of salt water, any idol of the heart imaginable. He calls it the God-garbage-gift paradigm. God, garbage, or gift. The idea is pretty simple. It's that we can take any of God's good gifts to us and go one of two ways. Both of which, by the way, are idolatrous and forms of salt water. One, we can worship that gift, make it the center of our hearts, affections, and our lives. We can worship it, making it a little g-god. Or we can demonize it, that is, we can treat it like Garbage. A helpful way to visualize it is sort of like a pendulum. So cue the pendulum. Sort of like a pendulum. So in the center position is seeing the things that God has given us to enjoy in this life as good gifts from Him that glorify Him that we can enjoy without making them idolatrous. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4-5, through 5, you can see it on the screen behind me. Paul writes this, For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Because, he writes, it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So this is the way, then, we are to treat potential salt water in our lives. We enjoy it with thanksgiving. We recognize it as a gift from God. And we move on. However, what we often do in our hearts is the pendulum swings one of two ways. So one way it can swing is that we turn a gift from God into a functional God. A little G-God. That is, we uh, we idolize it in our hearts. We look to it to give us the joy and satisfaction and purpose and meaning that only God can give. That's one way we could go with it. The other way is the garbage direction, if you will. The opposite reaction is to allow the pendulum to swing the other way. And we see that God, and we take God's gifts and we just see it as garbage. Here we don't idolize it, we, we demonize it, and it's simply another form of idolatry. See, in all three positions, we are putting our trust or our hope in something. If we see the object as a gift from God, we put our hope in God, in the living water that Jesus gives to us, and we enjoy it. But if it's a little G-God, we're putting our hope in that object, right? In that salt water to satisfy us. But the other way, when the object is demonized, we're putting our hope in avoiding it. So God, garbage, and gift. What does this look like? Here's how we're going to close. Hop gives us, I think, a very helpful and practical illustration. What functionally does this look like? And then as we move forward and take a look at a whole host of idolatrous passions and loves that we can turn to. We can use this as a paradigm. So he writes, Candace is a coffee addict. Surely none of you out there fall in that category. Candace is a coffee addict. She's, she's harsh towards her family before her morning cup of coffee. 
She stops into Starbucks three times a day, and she orders a Vinti Americana with five shots, yes, five shots of espresso. Her monthly coffee budget triples her car payment. Quite literally, she can't function without coffee. It is her God. So that is Candace. Stephanie, for example. Stephanie avoids caffeine at all costs. He says she believes it makes her body tainted in God's eyes. And while she admits this is a self-imposed prohibition, it may seem excessive to others in her mind, she secretly believes that there is a special blessing uh, in heaven if she abstains from it. So she self-righteously restricts herself from it. And of course she looks down on those of you who drink large amounts of coffee and pop. See, she's turned caffeine into garbage, and all the while she has allowed it to be an idol in her heart. Let's take Mary, for instance. Mary is a Christian. During the week, she limits herself to about two cups of uh, coffee daily, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. But on Saturdays, on Saturdays, she adds a bonus drink. She treats herself to a 7-Eleven Big Gulp. Her choice is a mix of cherry Coke and Diet Coke. Not what I would do, but whatever, right? 32 ounces of carbonated and caffeinated glory. As soon as the elongated red plastic straw hits her lips, she smiles from cheek to cheek with a gleeful chuckle, chuckle, and she says, Thank you, Jesus, for this blessing. And with an hour, it's gone. Her day continues, and she's done. See, to Mary, he writes... Caffeine is a gift from God. It's nothing more. It's nothing less. And she drinks on Jesus' living water. So three women, three responses to caffeine. One treats it as a God, the other as garbage, and the third as a gift. And this is the paradigm we'll be using as for the next uh, several weeks, we'll be looking at different flavors of salt water. Um, we'll look at the flavor of, uh, of money, of sex, of control, of comfort, of busyness, people, food, and even religion. These will be the flavors that we'll be looking at. Maybe I'll add one, maybe I'll take one away. But these are the saltwater flavors we'll be looking at from the scriptures. And the question that I want us to close with is, as we begin to use this paradigm, how do we use the gifts of God? Do we see it as a gift? Does it function as a gift in our life? Or does the pendulum swing one way and do we idolize it? Or does it swing the other way and do we demonize it? That's where we're going, friends. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth that your word reveals to us that even as Christians who are born again, that you have gifted us with the Holy Spirit, he resides within us and he draws us to satisfaction in you. And yet there is the flesh. And there is the flesh. And it turns us towards idolatry and a host of other sins. And we can walk in its way as well. Lord, help us, as Paul says, to walk in the Spirit so that we may not satisfy, gratify the desires of the flesh. Lord, encourage us by the fact that there is an end to this struggle in our hearts. That there will be a day when salt water will be no more and our flesh will be eradicated. And we will live with you and gulp from the streams of living waters. But until then, Father, help us to treat the things that you have given us as good gifts from your hand, to be received with thanksgiving, 
to be enjoyed for our good and your glory, but not to be idolized and not to be demonized. Give us wisdom as we pursue these in the following weeks, we pray. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. Amen. See you next week, guys. Thanks. Amen. time.